This is the podcast of Theophilus Church. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com. Tonight's scripture is from Matthew chapter 18, and it's verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So we continue on this week in our look at the creed, and we talk about the forgiveness of sins. And we'll get to this parable that we just read out of Matthew 18 in just a couple of minutes. There's a theologian that I really like named Karl Barth, and I was reading some of his uh, thoughts on this phrase of the creed, the forgiveness of sins. And he kind of sees this as a buildup to what has uh, been coming in the previous phrases. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. He says, what does it mean that by faith in the Holy Spirit, we've become members of the Holy Catholic Church, which includes this communion of saints? Karl Barth says it means that we've become part of a people who receive the forgiveness of sins. In fact, he goes on in this chapter in this book to talk about how for him, forgiveness of sins is the best definition for grace. He uses that almost interchangeably. Grace is the forgiveness of sins, and he strongly urges us to, to resist any temptation to make grace any less than that, that it is the forgiveness of sins. Usually when we think of forgiveness, we think of forgiveness in two different uh, kind of ways. Like we think of it as like a legal thing, right? Like we're forgiving a debt that is owed. How many of you uh, are hoping for some student loan debt forgiveness? Yeah, I'll raise my hand. Like we think about these big debts that we have and wouldn't it be great if that debt would be forgiven and it would go away? 
We also think about forgiveness and we think of the relational implications of that. That a broken relationship can be restored through forgiveness. We often use the word reconciliation to refer to that kind of relational restoration that comes as a part of forgiveness. Those of us who are Christian, we usually add a couple of other layers onto forgiveness as well. We consider forgiveness as something that happens between a person and God. There's that kind of dynamic of forgiveness. And also forgiveness is something that must happen between persons and person. We're going to look at all four of those tonight as we explore what it means to declare with the creed, I believe, in the forgiveness of sins. I think at first blush, this, person, this part of the creed probably makes us think more of our personal relationship with God than anything else. As good evangelicals, we are very aware of the need of forgiveness of sin, our personal standing before Jesus Christ. We think about the sins that we've committed and what Jesus went through to forgive us of those sins, to make that possible. In fact, that's what we often think of when we think of the condition of sin. We use sin in a couple different ways. We can talk about a specific action as sin, but sometimes we'll say we are in sin. We are estranged from God. The word that we get sin from in the Greek is hamartia, and it means really more missing the mark than anything else. In classical Greek, it was used uh, in Greek literature as a way of describing the tragic flaw of a character. It was also used in other contexts in the Greek uh, outside of the Bible to talk about what happens when an archer misses the target that the archer is aiming for. That there's something that's being aimed for, but the arrow doesn't hit where it's supposed to go. It didn't have the kind of negative emotional feelings that we often have when we use the word sin. I don't know anybody that has grown up in the church that likes to talk about sin. It makes you feel bad, like guilty or shameful or maybe frustrated. These things really weren't in the Greek understanding of the word hamartia. Hamartia included those shots that went way wide of the mark, like the ones that like hit the tree next to the target, but it also could be used to describe those ones that just didn't hit the bullseye. If it didn't hit exactly what you were aiming at, then it is hamartia. It's off that mark. We usually think of sin, I think, as something very intentional and very bad and very wrong. You have to mean it if you're going to sin. You know the rules and expectations, and somehow you choose to break those rules and expectations. Those are what we might call sins of commission because they're things that we've done, and they're ways that we have like intentionally missed the mark and not hit what we were supposed to hit. The Christian tradition, though, also recognizes another kind of sin. These are sins of omission and puts kind of equal footing to these as they do to sins of commission. Sins of omission uh, are those kind of things that we leave undone. In fact, one of the prayers of the church reads, Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. So there are those kinds of sins that are done because we don't take action, because we don't do the thing that, we're no, that we know we ought to do. When we read the Bible, we often see prayers uh, for sins of commission in the, in the Psalms. We were reading out of the Psalms earlier tonight as we worship together. Psalm 39, Psalm 51, these are Psalms about sins of commission, things that have been done. Lord, forgive me for my sin, for my transgression. 
But when we flip a few books later and we start to get into the prophets, we find that the charges leveled against Israel are often sins of omission. What Israel has left undone. You did not care for the poor, for the widow, for the stranger in your midst. You left that undone. We turn to the New Testament and the Gospels, those four pictures of who Jesus was and what Jesus did. Those four pictures take up this this cry of sin, but they start adding a new word to it. They add the word repent. Another scary word for those of us who've grown up in the evangelical church. John the Baptist comes on the scene and he starts saying, repent for the kingdom of God is coming close. Jesus comes in and he picks up that same mantra, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of heaven is near. When I hear the word repent, I think of a street preacher, usually very angry. And I don't know what repent means in that context, but I don't know that I want to find out. The word here for repent is the word metanoia, and it means to turn from or to change one's mind about something. Fundamentally, repentance is a reorientation. I think if we pair that with the Greek concept of sin, missing the mark, maybe this gives us the image of an archer reorienting himself towards the target, focusing in on the thing that he's supposed to be aiming for. For the people of Israel, God gave the law to serve as the target. And time and time again, they fell off to one side or the other of hitting that mark, the law. In his letter to the Romans, Paul tells us that we are all in this condition of having missed the target, missed the mark on more than one occasion. In the third chapter of that letter, he writes that no one has kept the law. He says, in fact, it seems that the law's biggest contribution to humanity has been to show just how ineffective we are at hitting targets. Whether Jewish or not, Paul says, we have all sinned, we've all missed the mark that the law sets up. With that law, though, God gave a system of sacrifices. Sacrifices to restore us to relationship with God when we had missed that mark. But it seems like that restoration never really takes. It doesn't last for more than a moment because people are always coming back to the temple to offer more sacrifices. In fact, throughout Israel's history, it seems that they've spent more time estranged from God than they did reconciled to God through the law. The thing that the Gospels testify to is that in Jesus Christ, God did something new. God came, put on human flesh, and fulfilled both the law perfectly and all the sacrifices it required. God hit the mark. We call this act of Jesus hitting the mark so perfectly like that, the act of atonement. And we explored this in depth a few weeks ago in a sermon that was on Jesus' crucifixion, death, and burial. As a result of Jesus fulfilling the law and the sacrifices perfectly, we get to partake in that. We get to be united to Christ and enter into reconciliation with God. All of this, though, is a legal way of talking about this idea of sin, that there's a debt that has to be taken care of. We find this over and over again through the scriptures, and we find this in the songs that we sing as well. There's a debt that's owed to God, it's got to be taken care of. And the the hope and the the joy of the message of the Gospels is that Jesus has taken care of that debt, that that debt has been forgiven. But there's also a relational aspect to forgiveness with God. If you notice, the story of humanity doesn't begin with law. The story of humanity begins in the Bible with relationship. 
God, the perfect triune God in relationship creates people to be in relationship with him and with one another. And the first effect of sin that we see, it's broken relationship. God goes searching for Adam and Eve after their sin and can't find them because they're hiding, because they're racked with shame. Broken relationship, not broken law, is the first effect of sin. In the sermons that uh, we've preached in this series on the descent of Jesus into hell and on his resurrection, we explored how Jesus reached all the way back through the whole of humanity to restore relationship with all those who had ever lived and sinned between God and his people. In fact, in those sermons, we looked at a couple resurrection icons and we saw how this is often visually depicted as Jesus glorified down in hell with his arm out towards Adam, pulling him up out of his tomb. Once again, Christ has united himself to us. He's united himself to us in our sins and he took those on and all of the debt and the relational brokenness that came with it. And when we are united with Christ, we take on his life and his death, and his resurrection, and his glory. We are fully reconciled to God in a relationship through Christ's righteousness. And we explored that in a sermon on Christ coming to judge the living and the dead. Just a few minutes ago, we heard Lahela read from Matthew 18. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that particular parable, but I wanted to read it again one more time. Some of you might be familiar with the practice of Lectio Divina. Lectio Divina is a way of engaging in the scripture in a slow and sort of measured way, not to kind of like pick it apart, do some deep exegesis and come out with like the right Greek word to then go apply to your life, but rather to acknowledge that the spirit who was around and motivating and making that word come into life as people were writing it down, that that same spirit that brought that word into being is also living and active and among us today. And that we can have a spiritual encounter when we read the Bible. That the spirit of God can cause things to pop out to us that maybe we've never seen before. And that's what the practice of Lectio Divina invites us to do. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this passage again, and I'm going to read it slowly, and I'm going to invite you just to listen. And just to be attentive to whatever the Spirit of God might have pop out at you. It could be a word or a phrase, a thought, an idea that comes out of this parable. We heard it read from the NIV before. I'm going to read a different version here just to make it a little bit strange to us, perhaps. This is from the NRSV. Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. 
But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves and who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother and sister from your heart. I don't know what stuck out to you on the reading of that passage. But as I've been meditating on this passage recently, there are a few things that stuck out to me. One is the incredible generosity of the king. We don't really pay one another in talents and denarii anymore. So that deserves a little bit of updating and translation. In the NIV that we read earlier, it said uh, 10,000 bags of gold. Well, I understand what they're doing there. We still don't usually pay each other in bags of gold. So I don't know that that's much more helpful for understanding the value of that. We've said before that a talent is worth roughly 15 years of an average person's wages. In today's dollars, if you put a talent as being equal to uh, $50,000, a year's wages as being equal to $50,000, then a talent, 15 years wages, would be $750,000. That's a huge sum. One talent, $750,000. This servant owed his king 10,000 talents. I'll do the math for you. That's seven and a half billion dollars. Seven and a half billion dollars was his debt. Like I can't even conceive of owing someone that much money or being in a place where I can forgive somebody that much money. This guy owed seven and a half billion dollars, 10,000 talents, seven and a half billion dollars worth of debt. In contrast, One denarius was worth a single day's wages. $50,000, that would be about $137 for a single day's wages. 100 denarii would be about $13,700, still a sizable sum, but many of us have owed that kind of money before. Maybe you've had an auto loan or still have a student loan that is somewhere in the neighborhood, either north or south of $13,700. We can grapple with that amount of money. Can you imagine what a difference it would make if a loan like that was forgiven for you? That'd make a real difference. The king expects to show his subjects to show him, to show others the same kind of mercy they've been shown. Can you see how ridiculous now, how frustrating it must be for the king to forgive a debt to one person of seven and a half billion dollars and to have that person turn around and have someone thrown in jail for owing $13,000. 
when we turn the focus of our state of sinfulness and forgiveness with God to the state of our relationships with one another, we find that we think similarly and differently about forgiveness. We don't usually call the broken relationships that we have with other people sin. I had a hard time thinking of a single word to describe all the different ways we experience broken relationships to one another. The one, only one I could think of is the word enmity, which isn't one we use much. But enmity describes the feelings of hostility, resentment, disorientation, and opposition between people. Enmity can exist between two individuals or between two whole groups of people. And when we approach that from a legal context, then we start to speak in terms of justice and injustice. Our end goal legally in relationships is restitution for the wrongs that have been done. That could look like acts of service against a community that's been wronged. It could be financial fines or requirements, some way of restoring money that's been lost or is owed. Most often, it includes in our system punishment, which may mean removing someone from society for a time or for, for, for good. We have laws that govern these kind of wrongs and tell us what kind of restitution is appropriate. All of this stuff between people. Legally, we're not usually concerned with the restoring of relationship. Restitution is enough for us. We want to make the offended person whole again, whatever that looks like, but that doesn't have to include and often doesn't include a restoration of a relationship between the two parties. When we turn to look more at the relational aspect of enmity, we shift from talking about restitution to reconciliation. The goal actually does become the repair of a schism between two people. Maybe that includes some of the tactics that we've seen legally, but it often goes beyond them. Reconciliation is the restoring of relationship, and this is where forgiveness enters. Because for reconciliation to happen, there's got to be two things that occur. There has to be an offer of forgiveness, and that offer of forgiveness has to be accepted. If either one of those things is missing, reconciliation can't occur. A lot of times we can't or won't get to reconciliation with everyone that we're estranged from. Sometimes, as the offended person, we aren't in a place where we can offer forgiveness. There may, that may be due to internal obstacles that we have. It could be due to logistical reasons. Maybe the person lives far away or it's unsafe for us to be in a reconciled relationship. But if the offer of forgiveness isn't there, then reconciliation simply can't happen, even if the other person would be quick to accept it. Sometimes as the offender, we don't want to accept forgiveness that's offered to us. Maybe we don't think that we've done anything that warrants forgiveness. Maybe we're suspicious of the other person's motives or their sincerity. Maybe we don't think we deserve to be forgiven. Whatever the case, if we are offered forgiveness and we don't accept that offer, we cannot be reconciled. The Bible, the Bible actually has a lot to say about forgiveness between people. We read Matthew 18 and we saw how the king forgave this huge debt that was owed to him and that his servant refused to do the same and that didn't end well for their servant. Jesus tells us at the end that being forgiven requires that we be forgiving. In Matthew chapter 6, we find one of the most well-known parts of the New Testament, the Lord's Prayer. 
In it, we find this, this line, forgive our debts, forgive our trespasses as we forgive our debtors, as we forgive those who trespass against us. If we continue reading, though, we find something interesting in Jesus' emphasis on this prayer. When we talk about the prayer, we usually focus on the top part. God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes, God, your will. When Jesus talks about this prayer, it's a lesson in forgiveness. He says, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Ooh. I like my interpretation of God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven a lot better. But that's not why Jesus taught us that prayer. That prayer is about forgiveness. Paul has a lot to say about forgiving other people as well. In Ephesians 4, he writes that we must forgive one another because Christ has forgiven us. He's echoing that parable that we read in Matthew 18. In 2 Corinthians 2, he urges the church to forgive a wayward brother who has fallen away from them. And he says, listen, if you guys forgive him, then I'll forgive him too. For whoever you forgive, I'll forgive also because we're part of the same family. Later in that same book, in chapter 5, he says that God reconciled the world to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us that same mandate to be reconciled, to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, to be reconciled to one another through Jesus Christ. Repeatedly in the New Testament, we're told that when we have been wronged, we should be ready to forgive. And when we wrong, we should be quick to seek forgiveness. We have a hard time with this teaching. And we throw up all sorts of obstacles as to why it doesn't apply in my life and my situation. But let's be clear, forgiveness is not pretending that what the other person did to you is okay. Forgiveness is not letting another person out of the consequences of their actions. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not blind trust in the person who wronged you. Forgiveness is choosing to no longer internally hold on to the wrong that was done to you. Forgiveness is also choosing to no longer hold that wrong over the other person. Sometimes we're the one that needs to be forgiven. We are the offender, not the offended. The Bible has instructions for when we find ourselves in that situation as well. In Matthew 5, Jesus says that when we come to church, we come to the altar to leave a gift or to participate in the communion gift here, and we remember that we have offended or hurt somebody else, we need to immediately leave and go seek their forgiveness. We need to confess to our offense and apologize to that other person. 1 John 1 reminds us that we receive ourselves, that we deceive ourselves if we say that this kind of stuff never applies to us. That we have to confess our wrongdoing, whether that is to God or to another person, and that God will, in turn, be faithful to forgive us if we confess that that we have done wrong. If we keep insisting that we don't need to confess anything, we don't need to seek forgiveness from God or other people, then, John says, we're just calling God a liar. In the book of James, chapter 5, we're instructed to confess, confess our sins to one another, to pray for one another, and that somehow that's linked up with our healing. As Protestants, we don't do confession 
as any sort of regular practice. I think whether conscious of it or not, we're still smarting from the abuse of that practice of the Roman Catholic Church some 500 years ago. Unfortunately, though, we threw the baby out with the bathwater. We didn't ever seek to correct the practice of confession. We just stopped doing it as though it no longer applies to us. Instead, we've spiritualized confession. We've turned it into this thing between me and Jesus, where when I sin, I'll just tell Jesus about it and accept the forgiveness of Jesus. How's that working out for you? Do you find that you're still struggling with the same sins? Maybe because we're missing a piece. The Bible tells us that we need to confess our sins to another human being. And I think it means that pretty darn literally. When Luther critiqued and then reformed the church, he shifted the understanding of the priesthood from being a select group of people that we must go to, to including all of us. What he called the priesthood of all believers. This is very scriptural. Peter talked about this in his first letter. He called all believers a royal priesthood. It became functionally important during and since the Reformation. What this means for us related to confession is that since we're all priests in the church, we can all hear one another's confessions. What do you think this might look like? I think that we need to find mature Christians that we know in our life, wise followers of Jesus, and ask them to listen as we own up to the ways that we have sinned by act of commission or omission. Ways that we've missed the mark, and we need to be honest with ourselves and thorough. And the role of the one that's hearing that confession, we might call that person the confessor. You have a very holy role if someone comes to you and says, can I tell you about my sin? The Spirit of God tells you to shut up and listen. That your job is not to moralize, to preach, to teach the other person, to correct or admonish them because you are just as guilty of sin as they are. Your job is to listen and to pray with them. It's a humbling thing to hear someone else talk to you about their sin, but it's oh so freeing for both of you. There are some significant obstacles that get in our way to giving confession or seeking forgiveness from other people or offering and accepting forgiveness. St. Ambrose of Milan observes that no one heals himself by wounding another. We sometimes think that it is right or just for us to hold or for us to withhold forgiveness from someone who has wronged us. Sometimes our pride convinces us that we do not need to be forgiven when we've offended someone else because it wasn't that big a deal that maybe all this forgiveness business is greater is of a greater need for other people, but certainly not for me. Thomas Akempis, in his uh, book, The Imitation of Christ, he writes about forgiveness and about being with one another in a sinful community. He says, we want others to be properly corrected, but take umbrage when someone corrects us. We are annoyed at another's freedom as being too ample, but want nothing denied us. We would have others bound by laws, but want no curbs set on our lives. It is frightfully evident, then, 
that we use one scale to weigh our neighbors and another for ourselves. If we were all perfect, then there would be nothing for us to suffer from the hands of others but for the love of God. But God has willed that we learn to bear one another's burdens. Each of us has some failing and some trial to bear, and none of us has the strength to bear them by himself, nor the wisdom. Therefore, we must bear with one another, comfort each other, support, instruct, and advise one another. The theologian Justo Gonzalez writes that often the reason we do not forgive others is that we ourselves are not convinced that we are forgiven. Whether through shame or fear, we can't come to terms with our own sinfulness and are often the most stringent when it comes to seeking or offering forgiveness with others. We also have a hard time dealing with our continued sinfulness. St. John Chrysostom wrote, Let no one mourn that he has fallen again and again, for forgiveness has risen from the grave. Though we strive to live upright and reconciled lives, we must not think that our continued sinfulness disqualifies us from being forgiven by God or forgiving others. We have to combat our pride, our shame, our fear. And we can do that by putting into place the regular acts of confession and forgiveness. Henry Nouwen writes that confession and forgiveness are the concrete forms in which we sinful people love one another. We bear ourselves to God and to one another when we practice confession and forgiveness. We need to practice these spiritual disciplines weekly. Before we come to the table each week, we should examine our relationships with God and with other people and set them in order. The church is a reflection of the God that we are called to serve. And that God has forgiven us everything in order that we be reconciled to him. We are a forgiven people. We must also be a forgiving people. That's what it means to recite this line of the creed. The creed doesn't say, I believe that humans sin. It says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And we can be a people that live out that, creed, that line of the creed in all our affairs, whether in heaven above or on earth below, whether in thought or in deed, word or in action. Let us be quick to confess our sins and quick to seek forgiveness and quick to accept the forgiveness that is offered to us. Each week we come to the table to break the body of Christ and dip it into the cup of his blood. And we remember the cost of the forgiveness that's offered to us. As we approach this table tonight, let us allow the Spirit to bring to mind all that we need to confess, all that we need to be forgiven for, let those whom, and those whom we need to forgive. Let us be reconciled to Christ tonight, and let us be reconciled to one another tonight. This table is open, and you may come as the Spirit leads you. Would you stand as I pray for us? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We haven't loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry 
and humbly we repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Theophilus Church. We hope you've been inspired and challenged by what you've heard. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com.